Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, and it's good to be with you. And I have to give some Mazel Tov shout-outs to Gabriella Bach, who graduated from uh, Rosemount Yeshiva, New Jersey, and Mindy Stein, who's graduating with Soros, and Ephraim Stein from Chafetz Chaim in Brooklyn. So they all get Mazel Tovs. You're on a graduation tour. You have to be at all of those. It's a binge. (laughs) You, you have to be at all of those, huh? Uh, I want to be at all of those. I, of course. I'm just saying, you know. Can't always fit everything into your schedule, but very nice. Baruch Hashem. Uh, a lot of things going on out there, to say the least. Uh, I, I I don't even know what there is to say, uh, but I'm always interested on, in, in when it comes... Uh, I'm always interested in your take when it comes to really serious episodes in this country. The congressional shooting takes place this week. You know all the rhetoric going back and forth. You also know the calls for unity that have come from it. What, what were your uh, initial reactions and your impressions in light of this terrible episode? Well, first of all, it's outrageous uh, that uh, people, Congress members, planning uh, for uh, preparing for a game, and and the toll was not much, much higher if it weren't for the fact that uh, one of them was the majority whip and happens to get Capitol Police protection. If not for that, there was no one there with a gun. There was nobody there who would have protected him, and he fired off many, many rounds. Maybe some people say hundreds in that uh, in that time, and could have. And, and many were hiding in the dugout. If he had started shooting there, they would have had no protection. So, thank God the toll was was limited. But you know, there is something about the mood in the country, and it's not this one test, this one guy, and you know, doesn't. And it comes from all parts of the spectrum. We really have to think about what's happening in our society because every morning you wake up to some tragedy and some tragic shooting or, or event, which every society has, and you can't prevent it completely. But we got to show that it's not acceptable, and and maybe something good will come out of it if the members start to tone down the rhetoric at least. Do you sometimes think, like others do, that because of the way news is delivered today, and because of the way everybody is completely um, you know, encapsulated in, in the 24-hour news cycle, uh, do you sometimes think that, um, that, that, that it just it hits home so much more directly because every one of us seems like we're, you know, just at the forefront of every news story? And it's the availability of the Internet that you, that you can live everything as it's happening. Yeah. It's not you didn't have to wait till the afternoon newspaper or the morning newspaper or even to the, the, the newscast. Uh, which were not in those days, even like we have them today. So it's, it makes it much more immediate and, and significant, and you follow every detail, even hearings and things like that, right. that you become an actual participant in it, which can be good and bad. I think it turns a lot of people off to the on the political side. You know, and, and I'm sorry for this aside, and we'll get to the core of our conversation in a moment, but I'm watching something yesterday where someone's interviewing a member of Congress, happens to be a Democrat, doesn't really matter, and they're talking about this issue of unity, etc. And I, I want this, this and, and of course, a Democratic congressman is very respectful and is, is, as an, and is, in fact, you know, hoping publicly that there'll be more unity, more respect, etc. Um... I was hoping that that congressman would respond to this questioner by saying, you know what, if you guys in the media would stop doing what you're doing 
and 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 creating a conflict in this country on a regular basis, not even daily, on, on an hourly basis, creating this conflict in this country and really ramping. You, you guys who are ramping up the rhetoric. So with the mass media, with the responsibility they've always had, but now with the tools that you described, I don't know. We may be facing a losing battle here. Well, I, I mean, I think unity is too much to demand right now. But at least the changing in the rhetoric and the the toning down of of the immediate and and condemnatory comments on on everything that that occurs and thinking about what the consequences of their words are amongst the constituents amongst people i mean the internet is almost impossible to control today and despite the promises by some of them to to eliminate some of the hate sites they pop up faster than anybody can can cut them out the the comments that are made there are virtually almost no control over. Right, that's so those in positions of leadership have to think about how they contribute to, to this, and that means across the board. No question. I would still put more of the blame on the mass media. Maybe that's just because of the events of this week. All right, moving to Israel, we read about the uh, IDF soldier, the son of former member of Knesset, Dov Lippmann, who was attacked in Mayor Sharim. I, I don't know even if you know how um, prevalent these cases are of soldiers being harassed in quote-unquote ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. But I will say one thing, and this is in light of what we spoke about last week, in light of certain demonstrations and gatherings that were taking place, if, if people would have accurate information about what's really going on, if people would understand that in Israel there's a demand by the government, just like in the United States, to sign up for quote-unquote selective service, and that is all the government of the state of Israel is demanding of their citizens, uh, just like happens here in the United States. And I would bet that everybody in this audience who has an 18-year-old has made sure that they have gone ahead and, and registered. Uh, if this information would be accurately reported and the rhetoric in this area would be uh, would be um, toned down, I think we would have less of those types of reactions in certain neighborhoods of Israel. And here. And the... And, uh, the you know, but I think it goes beyond it. There were several cases of young men being beaten up and, and one very seriously in Meir Sharim or near Meir Sharim because they were wearing uniforms. And the, you know, the security, the people who beat them up is contingent on these guys and on the IDF. And when, is, when they defend Israel, they don't say we're going to defend these sections or those parts of Israel. And for them not to think about the consequences. It's one thing if, even if they don't want their own kids to go, or they, you know, condemn the what happens in the military for whatever obscure reason. But the the idea that you beat up people and that you condemn them and you isolate them, and that you know, there's a program just to take these from soldiers who who can't go home to to give them places to live, etc. It's uh, you know, this is really such a, a distortion of reality and of responsibility. And I would hope that the leaders, even those who are critical, ought to speak out against this. I mean, this is so far beyond what should be tolerated in any respect. You can have political differences. And again, you got to express it in responsible ways. And if people can beat up on the street, guys, because they're wearing IDF uniforms, it's not acceptable. Uh, I admire the strength behind your words. I am shocked that there aren't rabbinic figures in those types of neighborhoods who are coming out and simply putting a stop to that part of these activities. It is, it is shocking, frankly, and uh, this is not the way that anybody in our community anywhere uh, should behave. And, and when these things do happen, you do see um, leaders in the community, certain types of leaders in the community, react 
and uh, condemn it. But in this case, we haven't seen what you're asking for, and I hope we will soon. Um, so have the has the PA uh, stopped making these martyr payments, stopped the uh, payments to families of Palestinians killed or wounded carrying out attacks against Israelis? No, yes, no, yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. I think but what he is asking the president the secretary of state or the, the president of the PA, the answer is no. They never, and they, they immediately denied what Secretary Tillerson said about cutting off payments. What they did say probably was, well, we'll work out something, as they did in the past when they shifted the payments from the PA to the PLO. So they're saying, well, we're not paying it, but they gave the money to the PLO to make the payments. This is the payments to those who kill and murder or their, or their survivors. And they said, we will never cut off the, the widows. And as if this is some sort of a welfare fund for heroes, as a po- which they do describe it as, uh, and starting with Abbas, and we have got to, as you see my statement, stop the tolerance of Abbas and the excusing of Abbas. He's the head. He's the the guy himself engaged in this stuff by the honoring and the recognition of, of the terrorists, naming schools and all the other things that go on in the incitement in the, in, in the uh in, through textbooks, mosques, or publications, media, Palestinian media. That that's one. And and second, the Congress has to go ahead and enact the Taylor Force Law, and the Knesset has a comparable law that there has to be some consequence, at least a financial consequence, and, and always finding excuses that oh well, if we, we we have to support them because it's social welfare. It's, it isn't. They're going to look for some obfuscation. That's essentially what they said, and Secretary Tillerson thought that they were really going to uh, stop it. Uh, based on, we should have known from, from past history that, that that is not the case. Based on and what it, was, and was, it is not the case. Based on what, was he assured that in some meeting or something? I think what happened was when they had uh, the meetings with the, when Abbas uh, had the meetings, uh, they, they, he, they, this is, again, uh, again, a repeat of the same scenario, the same show that we've seen before. It is what he has done all the time and on other issues as well, but on this one in particular, where they they cut off uh, 44 guys who were former um, uh, formerly recipients of the aid from Hamas, because he's doing something against Hamas. It has nothing to do with compliance with what the world is demanding, U.S. is demanding, but Europeans as well, and others, and Israel, of course. But it was because he has a fight with Hamas, so he cuts off these 44 guys from their, their pensions. He, he, he lies and distorts all the time, and, and we have to be very careful not to fall into this trap. And maybe it's, you know, because uh, it's his first rounds with him that he doesn't know that, uh, that this is the standard practice. So we're putting on notice to say this is standard proceedings for, uh, for, for Abbas, and just know that he's going to find a way to continue this to pay the, quote, martyrs and the prisoners. And it amounts to 7% of their total budget. It's over $300 million a year. Right. Uh, We've spoken about Hamas and its stockpiling weapons and building tunnels either in or under uh, schools and hospitals, etc. And uh, it was discovered again this week, early part of the week, uh, that there were tunnels found under U.N. schools in Gaza. And this this nonetheless, nonetheless, all of this has never led the U.N., Security Council to call Hamas a terrorist organization, right? They have not designated it, and the and we are calling for it since Bilal as well. The the uh, uh, Security Council, but but it's even more. I mean, we we have t- taken no 
real effort. We've seen no real effort on the part of the UN to rein in UNRWA, which has no reason to exist. It is uh, it's an uh, you know an ac- an anachronistic uh, leftover from 70 years ago, when every other population refugee population is dealt with by the High Commissioner of Refugees. Only Palestinians have their own agencies and have their own committees in the UN and budgets set aside and uh, lots of money, millions and millions of dollars that we should be saying finally no more. And the calls to disband UNRWA are certainly warranted. Uh, they, they, those duties can be assumed by others, but we've seen the corruption of, of UNRWA by officials from there who, who operate as political uh, operatives, uh, including serving in elected positions with, uh, within Gaza, uh, and who have allowed UNRWA to be uh, used for the extremist purposes. You remember the schools and during the war and all yeah, of the sure. things. But this time, the tunnels go underneath the UNRWA schools. And now they can't deny that they had any knowledge, that somebody there didn't have knowledge that they were doing this. And they, and those who are are uh, brighter, who have commented on it, noted that this is exactly what they want to do. They want to draw fire onto schools because if Israel finds out where the tunnels are and they have to respond to the tunnels because they shoot from there, then Israel will be accused again of, of uh, targeting civilians. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio exclusively around the world at com, the NSN Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Is uh, Russia responsible for uh, killing ISIS leader Baghdadi? We don't have confirmation of it that I know of, but it's it, uh, it's something that probably took place a month ago, and... Um, I'm sure that if they waited this long, it's probably because they were waiting for some sort of confirmation. It would be a big move if they did. And um, in general, Russia, just remind me, Russia feels um, uh, threats from ISIS within the country. There have been sure. there have been plenty of attacks, correct? There have been attacks, and because you have many people from Chechnya and other Muslim areas and parts of the former Soviet Union and the Soviet Union who have gone to fight in Syria, and uh, which pose a threat. And as you know, Russia has a huge Muslim population, and the the big part of the military officer corps are Muslims, and they're very worried about radicalization, especially like all the other countries in Europe and elsewhere that have hundreds and hundreds of people fighting from China to the United States, fighting in Syria, worry about it, especially as ISIS is being defeated and, and cut down in size. Russia has numerous agendas, though. So one is that they claim they killed 300 fighters also um, that they want to eliminate, and, and France sent 30 people to be a hit squad to eliminate French soldiers who are fighting there because you, you can't know when they come home. You, you know, they come home with passports, they can slip into Europe anywhere, and all of a sudden you're going to face a really serious issue. I mean, you're facing a serious issue, but I'm talking about translated into tragedies. So for Russia, th- their main thing is to keep us out of power, to keep their military bases. They don't care that much about the rest, even with Iran expanding its influence, and we know that Soleimani, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, the head of their uh, Al-Quds Brigade and the, and the mastermind of a lot of the stuff that we have seen uh, is, has been seen on the Syrian-Iraqi border, and what we believe is that they are bringing together uh, the different forces from uh, on both sides, the Shiite forces on both sides of the Iraq and Syrian uh, border to create a contiguous 
presence, and this is part of the plan that Iran has to build uh, a land corridor from Tehran through Iraq, Syria, Lebanon to the Mediterranean and along Israel's borders. They, uh, uh, the United States has set up an area in Ogozon which actually blocks that, but ISIS was controlling areas that block the Iranian uh, aspiration. The Russians uh, don't have a similar uh, goal. They want to control the area n- near Latakia and, and Tardis where they have their bases and the, what will be an Alawite area for uh, President Assad. So... so that, that j- just uh, that the it, the numbers though really are are important in this case that the the Iran Revolutionary Guards have formed trained and deployed I think forty two brigades and one hundred thirty eight battalions of Shiite forces and now we're talking about tens of thousands of people who are now and and, and this is in addition to the population shift that Iran is engaged in in Syria replacing Sunni populations with Shiite populations. So how does Russia react? We know how the U.S. reacts, or at least I would conjecture how they would, but how does Russia react when the Iranian uh, Navy-guided missile boat harasses U.S. Navy ships in the Strait of Hormuz? Well, anything that uh, embarrasses the U.S., I think Russia right now welcomes. Even if it's a show of strength by Iran, or especially if? Well, no, I don't think it's especially, but I think it's it's anything that embarrasses, and you see that they try to uh, Putin very cleverly manipulates every one of these uh, situations. The, the Iranian harassment, again, of our ships, three of our ships just a day ago, and a helicopter. It, again, it's, it's a result of the fact that we, we don't take the kind of action that sends a strong message because they won't do it again. They, they wouldn't continue this, these actions if they got an appropriate response. And, and I think the fear that they will, that will escalate to whatever is not founded. They continue to do what they do regardless, and they probe for the weakness, and when they find it, then they then they exploit it, and they're, they're constantly exploiting it. Um, Israeli, Israel had to restore its diplomatic, I don't know about had to, Israel restored its diplomatic ties with New Zealand. It was that one UN Security Council resolution that had strained relations between the two countries? Yeah, it was 2234 uh, when uh, September... But uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke to the Prime Minister in New Zealand, and he expressed, or, or he called and expressed regret for the vote. And uh, so the ambassadors returned, and hopefully relations are off to a much better start. The uh, we're speaking so much about the UN these weeks. Um, the uh, Jerusalem Post reports on the Palestinians claiming the tomb of the patriarchs, Marat Machpelah, UNESCO. That would mean exclusive to them, as opposed to any mention of Jewish heritage with the Mara, right? Well, what they're doing is that they're uh, asking that the old city of Hebron, which would include the Martim and uh, and all of its environs, um, that would be designated as a World Heritage Site in danger. And so, A, it's a claim that Israel is not sustaining and protecting the places and would um, uh, enable them to make claims then for... Uh, regarding the sites and and, and uh, interfere even more. Obviously, it's a false claim. It's not the first time they've done this regarding other places, the Kotel and uh, Maratha Mahbela is not the, the first example of this, and they, it's not the first time they actually make reference to it. They've done it before, but it's it's this continuing, it's the conjuring of a, of a UN agency, of UNESCO, and, and manipulating it and its agenda from all of the other issues that it should be dealing with and the UN should be dealing with, 
So we've seen condemnations, we've seen criticisms of it, but they continue because they get away with it. It goes back to what we talked about earlier. Um, Yeah, but in this case, we've gone ahead over the last, you know, 50 years, frankly, and allowed them to have the same access to the Mara that we have. Uh, I I think that's a little bit of a different battle than the Kotal battle would be. Uh, No, but it's it's the principle. They're not they're not limiting uh, our access by this. Right. They they are making complaints about uh, some of the conditions, and most of the conditions that are bad is because of of the the lack of cooperation, involvement, and and the waqf there of the of the the Mara and the waqf at the of Hebron both complimented the Israelis in the past for their. Cooperation for the facilitating things, letting them have their feasts there, and and the conditions in the inside the, um, the their mosque there, and of course the overall conditions. They've co- consistently complimented them on it. Yeah, and never more than now during Ramadan, mm-hmm. which is when they make uh, you know every accommodation they possibly can. The prime minister's trip this week was to Greece, to Cyprus, to both. What was that? It's it's a, a visit to Saloniki, which is in Greece. Uh, but the president of Cyprus came there, and this is the second trilateral meeting of the second or third trilateral meeting of the three heads of state. It's part of this new coalition, and we have been very involved in it, uh, working with the Greek American leadership to help foster it with the leaders in Greece and, and Cyprus. And we go every year to to visit with their leaders, the leaders of the three countries, to reinforce it. It's very critical as a building block for a bigger Mediterranean initiative, but with the energy now and other things. And Greece, even when the leftist government came in, people said it wouldn't be friendly. And in fact, Greece is more friendly, and the, they give Israel strategic depth. They let Israel's Air Force fly and do exercises over the islands that they have, and um, the two militaries work very closely together. They do more increasing trade and even tourism. And, uh, so the, this is a very important relationship. And if Israel would become a serious exporter of natural gas, they would need Greece's cooperation to build a pipeline. Well, one of the pipelines is Turkey. One of the pipelines would be to Greece to go from Greece into Europe. And the likelihood of that happening is good, I guess, if the way you're yeah, describing it. It's the a very complicated thing to lay underground into very deep water. But that's uh, the plan. And when the discoveries first happened, so we started talking about, you know, Israel becoming energy independent. It's something you've mentioned every few weeks since then. Are we uh, are we very close to that? Far away? Is there, you know... Is Israel's energy independent, by and large. And the, the sites haven't been fully exploited yet. There are many more sites yet to be uh, developed that uh, are waiting. I know some of the com- com- companies uh, that were expected to bid on them didn't yet. Uh, and there's a limitation that the existing companies are not allowed to bid on more than the um, the sites that they already have. Uh, and Israel's laws are a little bit anachronistic in this regard, too. So <laughs> it's a complicated process. But the relationship between Cyprus and Israel, Cyprus is literally 40 minutes by plane from Israel, and many, many are going there, and there's a kosher restaurant in Lanar Canal, and there's Chabad in, in, in Cyprus, and I think 600 Jews who live there. Uh, but that relationship is also developed, and the president of Cyprus showed me on his desk he has a special phone, which is a hotline to Netanyahu. Yeah, imagine that. Uh, but I was asking more, because we know about the wealth that you know certain 
uh, oil producing countries have. Not that not that I'm you know that anxious to take away their fortunes, but I, I assume at some point uh, countries like Israel and others who are able to you know uh, outsource and export other sources of energy are going to make a dent. I would guess in their oil exports. Am I right, or is that uh, is it so small that it won't have any effect on the on the? Oh no, it will have an effect, and it also limits the control that OPEC can have. Right. Uh, on production, and this is gas, by, by the way, primarily, right. and, and the um, uh, Israel's ability to export to be water sufficient and energy sufficient solves two of the most critical problems that Israel was was facing, and it strengthens as much as as part of the security situation as is the IDF and the military capacity. This is a, these are very significant developments, and. The fact that the, the, the find is the size it is, and hopefully, you know, Cyprus also has finds off of its waters. It has a huge claim, not so much of territorial waters, but economic waters, and the pipeline to, to Turkey, for instance, would have to go through it. So there was a little tension there, but I think they worked it all out. By the way, I wanted to ask you, we talk about the relationship with other countries and how some, some leaders have this close relationship with Israel. Um you must hear, I would assume, from Jewish leadership in London about the relationship between the Jewish community and the mayor of London at this point. Uh, mayor Sadiq Khan, is, you know, I think there was some apprehension among the Jewish community. Um, do you hear anything about whether there is, in fact, a cordial relationship or not with the mayor and the Jewish community? What I've heard so far is that there is, and you know that he turned to the Israeli police for guidance in dealing with the terrorism that they face, and he has attended when there was a tragedy in the Jewish community. So as far as I know, the that relationship, the relationship with the Labor Party is terrible and getting worse, and as Corbyn is unrepentant and continues on his way, the, uh, the question whether they will come back will, will depend. And, you know, there's a lot of assessment going on about why young people would vote for somebody who, who has harbored such horrific views, hostile views to the Jewish community and to, to certainly to Israel. And um, uh, there's a lot of this, uh, analysis and that and we've had discussions with people in Great Britain about it. Uh, it certainly is discomforting to them. Uh, but the government will still be run by Mrs. May for now, at least, and and the uh, DUP, the Irish uh, Party, will come in. Uh, the Northern Ireland Protestant Party will come. Uh, uh, Protestant Party will come in, and they are very pro-Israel. Uh, it's interesting that he's consulting with Israel regarding terror. I would think that most European nations and European leadership, when consulting with Israel, likely would not implement what Israel most of what Israel would recommend when it comes to terrorism. Am I right or not? No, they, actually Israel is teaching all the countries, they have people working virtually everywhere, Africa, Asia, Europe, teaching the lessons they learned from everything from airport security, perimeter security, IDing potential terrorists. Everybody is using and, and hiring ex-IDF officers. They're, they're, I mean, it's sort of an employment program for guys who graduate from and finish their service. They all start up these security companies. I see one a week at least. Unbelievable. Uh, but what I was saying was, you know how different the airport experience is in Israel compared to European countries? Mm -hmm. and I think certain things they just, they hesitate to implement that make sense, but may, you know, may lead them to either be accused of something or... They don't make you take off your shoes in Israel. Correct. That's one difference, for instance. Yes. But it just, it, just, it just seems that, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not looking for liquids in Israel. They're looking for terrorists. 
And I don't know if, you, if, if, if European leadership's ever going to be able to adjust to that, frankly. I mean, that's just one thing. It's just airline security, I understand. But uh, if you're telling us that they do follow the Israelis and they implement what they have to say and they're hiring Israelis to do what they need well, to do. Well, they make their own decisions. But, yes, they, they look to Israel for guidance on a lot of the terrorism issues. Right. Operation uh, everywhere. Iranian presence in South America is something we haven't discussed in a few weeks. Could you tell us what's happening in that regard? Well, there were hearings this past week, and... Uh, um, Professor Odolenghi and others who have testified talking about the extensive efforts of, of Hezbollah, which includes cigarette smuggling, and I know people think it's not significant. It yields them tens of millions of dollars a year, and they have operations here in New York, but throughout South America, and it comes from West Africa. I don't want to go through the, the whole thing, but it is uh, uh, serious because Hezbollah's activities are often funded by by the local um, mafia operations that they have, and it's tied into organized crime, it's tied into narco-terrorism, it's tied into really bad activities. And you saw the arrests here, that, that the Hezbollah is present in the United States, and, and this is only one example of, of many such uh, arrests and trials that that, um, have t- that take place, and some of them get very little uh, attention. But it's, it's really critical that people understand and that the hearings are uh, as something we have urged for a long time were were very important because of what they heard about the extent of these activities and the impact that they could have. Yeah, but we don't hear, I, I mean, I understand that there's the presence that you just described. The reason, you know, I'll tiftach peh, the reason we don't hear of more terror attacks, though, um, and, you know, that, that we see in Middle Eastern countries in, in places like South America, if these... Is- they're thwarted in many cases. They, they're prevented. Um, the, it's a good intelligence, FBI, NYPD, others uh, really devote a lot of resources to this. But you saw in Europe yesterday announced that there were 140 attacks last year, either thwarted, uh, caught in the process of uh, being perpetrated. Um, so... The, the real numbers of, of incidents, if you accumulate all of the facts about the attempts here or the prevented or those that were not completed for other reasons, the numbers are quite significant. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, you saw that Robert Kraft has brought 18 Hall of Fame NFL players to Israel? Yes, he's done this, I think, the second year or third year in a row. Pretty we, amazing. America's Voice of Israel also brought a trip of of uh, football players in. I think they do. He does it in conjunction with the Hall of Fame, so that there are a lot of former players. Right. But uh, yeah, he's he, what he's done, and you know he's um, donated a lot to build stadium and other things in the Kraft Field and Kraft Stadium in uh, in Israel. So it's a very important, and and these guys come back and they speak to many audiences. And when it's why we do the program, we do of bringing influentials from all segments, entertainment, you know, science, religious leaders from all the target communities that we would want to reach. And we have serious problems, and and this is a one way of of countering it is because it's so contrary. The experience of Israel is so contrary to what most of them anticipate. I couldn't believe some of the names I saw. Uh, that are part of that trip. And it just shows you that if people want to be creative, there are a lot of things aside from financial support, a lot of things people can do to really help when it comes to Israel. And you would you would argue that just like uh, these people are coming back and saying positive things, each of us can be ambassadors right here in this country and convince people and, you know, rightfully uh, uh, t- tell people how important Israel is and all the positive aspects of Israel. 
to tell the story again. Tourism is hitting records every month now, and this year is well on its way to being a record year. But it's still small compared to what it should be. And I think that that there's so much that they can be proud of. And and when we talk about look, look at what the Africans are doing, how they're reaching out to Israel, the the kind of reception. Uh, that they get, uh, that the Prime Minister got on his recent visit, second, and he will be playing, paying a, a, another one that uh, I heard uh, uh, soon. So, What month? When he would, he just was there last month, and I think the next one is in the fall, ah. if I'm not mistaken. But the, the, you know, there's just so much now, there's so much distortion and misrepresentation. Uh, I know the Swiss Parliament voted to end funding of of anti-Semitic NGOs. We're seeing more and more states, 20 states that have anti-BDS legislation. I can't so, figure out the Europeans. One, nobody can. One day they, they do. They can't. How can we? One day they do that. The next day they're going crazy about settlements. Well, it's like at the UN. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. There are similarities, but <laughs> but 50 governors signed anti-BDS statements. You know, there's just a lot going on, and and. Um, we have to tell the story, and people assume people know it's not true. That's why these trips, why when I began America's Voices you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, and we started, as you know, with uh, radio broadcasters and others, influentials in the media, and it kept expanding it amongst even young evangelicals. We have problems today, and, and taking them and letting them be exposed to Israel changes it. I'm talking about the millennial leaders who are emerging in the evangelical community, which you all assume would take for granted they're going to be pro if you don't work it. In the Hispanic community, tremendous impact and identification then uh, uh, with Israel. So it's... it's um, everything we do is, is important. Everybody we speak to and the polls, our studies show that the numbers go up by multiples in terms of being pro-Israel when people talk to their work colleagues, their friends, everybody that they encounter. Yeah. Uh, I know we, we really had the, the the discussion we needed to have about Parsha Schlach we really did last week, but I just want to mention one thing to you before we wrap up, and this is, you know, graduation season, a lot of Parsha Schlach divrei Torah from the podium, and uh, it, they were so close. The Jewish people were this close to that generation becoming the generation that would conquer Israel. They were on the cusp. Moshe Rabbeinu sent in scouts, right? And they're on the cusp. And that was the generation to conquer Israel. And, of course, it became the generation that ended up dying in the desert. And sometimes I think we don't realize how close we are. And, unfortunately, as a community collectively around the world, we sometimes below the opportunity at the very, very edge at the last minute. As, as you've indicated to us many, many times, history repeats itself. Uh, let us hope that we're able to get over what has happened both in that episode and in subsequent episodes in Jewish history, and uh, act a little differently and, and get the job done, so to and speak. And we get so many reminders that, you know, there was an auction house that in the last week announced that six previously unknown photographs of the Mufti Haj al-Amin uh, from 1943 with the Nazis, Himmler, and even with Hitler, uh, he was the Mufti from 21 till 37, you know, the uncle of, of Arafat yep. and one of the leaders of the Palestinian National Movement, as they call it. Um, and he was uh, one of the instigators of the riots in 1920 and 1929 and 36 to 39. And, you know, there were people who denied it, who denied it to me when I mentioned it in speeches and stuff. And here are six new photographs emerged now 
70 years later, showing his, in, in, um, that he had contact with the top leadership of the SS and Gestapo and, and even met with Hitler. And I, I believe that each time these things that come out of nowhere, and, and next week maybe we'll discuss some of the amazing archaeological discoveries that just by chance somebody turning over a shard that ha- appeared blank and that they were just putting in a box and had the, you know, the, the device to examine it. Uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's x-ray, but the, the, um, that penetrates it. He just turned it over and all of a sudden he found the writings on it that they're now deciphering, but it's biblical texts from two and a half thousand years and nobody saw it. Unbelievable. As, does anybody think this is just coincidence that some guy happened to flip it over? And now they're going through all the old, old things that they had discarded and put it away to look and see whether there are additional messages and, and writing on a lot of these things. I, I, I tell you, I think if people are blind to all of this, I, I, I just don't understand it. I can't, I can't relate to people who can't see this, this reality and, and the messages that are constantly being sent to us and, and to wake up to it. It's, it is amazing. Well said. Uh, Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Fridays for the weekly update here at JMNAM. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful have, Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos. And happy Father's Day. There he is, Malcolm Holine with us, Fridays at JM in the AM.